0: Welcome to Christianity Without the Baggage podcast with Paul Neal. Episode 6, Grasping the Mystery of the Trinity. One of the most important foundational teachings of Christendom is the doctrine of the Trinity. But if you were to ask the average Christian to say what it is, this is what you'll get. The Trinity is three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If a non-Christian were to ask, Doesn't that sound like three gods? How can three be one? The most likely answer would be, I don't understand it, but that's what the Bible teaches, and I just accept it. Now first, a disclaimer here. I'm not gonna say that I fully understand it. In fact, no one can make that claim either. I can't help remembering the late boy scout director of the Catholic school I attended, the amiable Father Mondragon. My brother Tom and I would serve as his altar boys on occasion. Whenever he was asked a difficult theological question by us curious boys, he would lift his palms up under his face saying, ah, that is a mystery. And he wasn't the only Catholic priest in our school who would answer like that. As an evangelical Christian years later, my pastor would make fun of that response of a mystery. For we arrogantly believed we had the truth of scripture as written in the inerrant word of God. No sir, no ma'am, we didn't have mystery, but certainty. I now realize that in more ways than one, the Catholic Padres were correct. It is a mystery. God is a mystery. Simply to say one understands the mind of God because of words written in the Bible, to quote the late Bishop Spong, is the height of arrogance. In my first episode of this podcast titled, Imagining God, I tried to say how I perceive God who is all-knowing, all-loving, and everywhere using my 21st century imagination. For isn't it in our minds that we make sense of the God we worship? That's all we humans can do and have done throughout the centuries. The earliest humans, for example, worshipped the sun because of its vital importance to them and every living thing around them after they moved on from being hunter-gatherers to early agriculture, God became the God of the harvest. Forming the first communities, God became a tribal chieftain God. And as these communities united to form the early cities to city-states, God became the military God-king. If you read through the Bible, you will see the Old Testament authors' evolving perception as they try to make sense of God with their Bronze and Iron Age minds. Just like the other peoples of the world, the Hebrews saw their God as a tribal God. Every tribal God has a chosen people because this expresses the belief that everyone else, well, is unchosen. Therefore, you can justify Anything you do to them because God has already rejected them. Read it for yourself in Exodus, Joshua, and First Samuel. Genocide? Sure. Rape? Absolutely. Don't tell me if you read those passages, you didn't scratch your head. And if you did, like I did, it's because you now have a different perception of God. Now we see God as revealed by Jesus Christ and of course our modern minds. But in those days, That was perfectly acceptable because the tribal God hates everyone that the tribe hates. In Exodus, God hates the Egyptians. In Joshua, he hates the Amorites. In 1 Samuel, God hates the Amalekites and ordered total genocide of the population, including the animals. The tribal God was a God of exclusion. Like I discussed earlier, Only the tribe is chosen, the rest are damned. Does this sound familiar? Indeed, for so many of our dear brothers and sisters still hold on to this position. But if you keep reading through the Old Testament, you will find that even in the minds of the ancient peoples who believed in a very small universe, their perception of God evolved. The prophet Hosea revealed to us in the story of his wife, Gomer, a god of unconditional love. She went from being an unfaithful party girl to prostitute. Every time, Hosea sought her out and brought her back. Each time, she would run away again. Eventually, the years took their toll, for even a prostitute has to be desirable to sell her body. Her survival finally depended on her being purchased as a slave, that is, if anybody would have her. Hosea found her in the slave market and redeemed her by purchasing her from those that sought the profit from even her highly diminished appearance. He brought her back to his household, not as a slave, but as the wife he loved. The prophet Amos taught that worship that ignores the poor is injustice and nothing but idolatry. God is redefined as justice, not judgment, but fairness, compassion, and acceptance. In Jonah, we understand that God does not accept prejudice. If you want to know what prejudice really means, it's when you think the limitless love of God is limited to our capacity to love. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the tribal understanding of God is completely redefined as a God who loves all peoples of the earth. Look what it says in Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name. And in Malachi 2.10, have we not one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? All this set the stage for God's revelation in the Christ, who on the Sermon on the Mount taught us that God wants us to love even those we perceive as our enemies. He also revealed to us that all humanity is our neighbor. Does that sound like a God of exclusion to you? It is then no wonder at all when the Apostle Paul wrote that everything in the universe will be brought together in Christ humanity's perception of the Father God was changing with his character being ultimately revealed in Jesus, the Anointed One. Remember, that's what Christ means, the Messiah or Anointed One. The Apostle Paul declared that Jesus is the revelation of the invisible God. And Christ himself said in John 49, whoever sees me sees the Father. He absolutely did not mean the Father was a a human-like form like Jesus because God is Spirit. He also did not mean he was the Father. So Christ being the revelation of the Father who is invisible reveals to us as humans what the Father's character is like in a way that we can understand. And we understand now through Christ and as perceived by later Old Testament prophets, the Father is a God of unconditional and universal love. The book of John which is the last gospel written states in john 1 verses 1 to 3 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning all things came into being by him and apart from him nothing has come into being that has come into being in him was life and that life was the light of humanity now, it's very easy to miss the deep insight those verses proclaim just by a quick reading, or in this case of a podcast, just hearing them. The word translated, the word, is the Greek word logos, which means word, yes, but also reason and discourse. Think of it in human terms as God speaking his mind or making himself known. So therefore, the logos of God is inseparable from god himself so therefore when it says all of creation came from him and of course because god spoke everything into existence that includes the very life we have we are all born of god with his divine light now john assigns the pronoun him to the logos because in verse 14 of the same chapter john declares that the logos took on the form of a human being which we now know as jesus The divinity of Christ, however, was an issue that the early church fathers grappled with. It wasn't until the year 325, with the issuance of the Nicene Creed, that Jesus' place as the second person of the Trinity was formally established. As far as the Holy Spirit was concerned, the Nicene Creed simply says, we believe in the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until the First Council of Constantinople in the year 381 that the Holy Spirit's role was formalized as the third person of the Godhead. The updated Creed declared that the Holy Spirit was the Lord and giver of life and proceeded from the Father and together with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified. Now don't forget as we covered in the fourth episode of what was the meaning of a Christian, these councils were both theological and political in nature. They decided on who's in and who's out. If you were in, you were part of the orthodoxy. If you were out, your beliefs were heresy, and you were a heretic and deserving of death. I say that because if you want to prove a theological position, you can always find biblical proof for it. And if there's political pressure from the emperor, no less, to get in line, there will always be people who will toe the line. Now, if you're waiting for the shoe to fall and me saying, I don't believe in the Trinity, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I do, because the truth of God that is found in the Bible supports it. There is Trinitarian work all throughout the texts. For example, in Genesis 1 verse 2, there is the Spirit of God moving across the surface of the waters. As a side note, the word used for spirit is ruach, which is actually a feminine word. Look it up. I think this is God's way of reminding men who were the Bible authors that while Yahweh, the Father God, is perceived in the Bible as masculine, God transcends mere human gender classifications. How about the Genesis 32 story of Jacob wrestling with God? In verse 24, the one who wrestled with Jacob, who eventually twisted his hip, was identified as a man. And in verse 30, Jacob said, he saw God face to face and survived. Is this a pre-incarnate appearance of the Logos, who we know as Christ? But remember, this is Christianity without a baggage, and I have no company lying to fall behind. I just want to make sense of what is revealed in the simplest, less burdensome way possible. In my first episode, Imagining God, I imagined the almighty, all-knowing, ever-present, all-loving being who we worship in the light of our present-day understanding of the infinite fastness of the created universe. So we cannot use texts, for example, that say, Christ sits on the right hand of the Father and visualize something like the Game of Thrones, where we have an old bearded white man sitting on the throne, and on his right side, a younger white man who is the King's hand. Don't laugh. If we're being honest, we've all had that picture in our heads. So I try to grasp the mystery of the Trinity as the Father's Spirit who transcends the vastness of creation, which to date, is estimated trillions of light years in diameter speaking forth the logos his desire to create humanity and all of creation the logos assume the form of humanity which you know as jesus christ and the breath of the father the ruach in hebrew and numa in greek through the logos enters all of creation including humanity that's why in genesis the word used for god is elohim which is plural let us make humanity in our image and that very same elohim looked at what was created and said it was very good and remember the truth in god's dimension of eternity looks far far different from what we experience moving second by second minute by minute hour by hour in this dimension of time where we exist. In the quantum eyes of God, the whole history of human existence of an estimated 2 million years is a mere blip. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, we are already past tense in the heavenly dimension with God. And I look forward to seeing all of you there, my dear fellow humans. I'll see you at the next podcast.